If you have a Bible, please find Psalm 1. Psalm 1. You had your baby. Well done. Can you tell us the name and... One, well done. Welcome, Pembroke. Congratulations. Good job. Glad you're here. Let's see. Okay. Back up here. If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 1. We're beginning a series of sermons this morning on prayer. And the title for the series is Honest to God. And the subtitle is Learning to Pray Like Jesus. You see, we cannot mature as Christians without a deepening life of prayer. And we cannot mature as a church without a deepening life of prayer. Now, when I say prayer, I mean real prayer, serious prayer. I'm not talking about, holy cow, help me, Jesus. I think I'm about to have a wreck or whatever. Or holy cow, Aubrey's driving, clearly women and children. That's prayer that comes natural. We all do that kind of prayer. I'm not talking about that kind of praying. I'm not talking about the kind of prayer that's tacked on the periphery of our lives. The kind of prayer I'm talking about this morning and throughout the series is a kind of praying that does not come natural and it does not come easy. So right, help me, or oh no, or I'm so sorry. Like there's so many of those kind of prayers that come out of us very naturally. That's not the praying I'm talking about. The kind of praying that is required for a Christian to to grow in their Christianity, the kind of praying that's required for you and me to become more fully human, more truly ourselves, that kind of praying requires learning and discipline. This is why in our gospel reading, Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, that is really odd because if you can imagine, the disciples, Jesus, they grew up in a Jewish culture that was committed to praying at set times every day. So do you know how you might be familiar with Islam, right? Many Muslims, they'll pray five times a day facing Mecca. That's a tradition of prayer that Judaism had. Seven times a day they would pray. So when you read in the Psalms, morning, noon, and evening, evening I pray, that was set our prayer. At a certain time in the morning they prayed, at a certain time in the middle of the day, at a certain time at the end of the day. It wasn't that these are people who are like super prayer people. These are just people who did what their culture did. That's how the disciples grew up. They grew up in a culture that knew how to pray the way you know how to work a debit card. It was just like in their blood, right? Okay. When these disciples who grew up in this culture, knowing how to pray, when they suddenly realize that with Jesus, something else is going on, something else entirely. And so when they say, teach me how to pray, teach us to pray, what they're talking about is a kind of prayer that requires learning and it requires discipline. Now, I don't mean to say by this prayer is complicated. I'm not trying to tell you it's like calculus. You got to have a mind for it or you got to have the best teacher for it. What I'm saying is that the kind of prayer that's required for any of us to really mature, this kind of prayer is a skill. It's like a skill. It's like um, any kind of skill. If you want to get good at a skill thing, 
you have to practice. You want to get good at using a bandsaw or playing the piano or shooting a gun or reading a book or working on a car or fishing, practice. That's what's required for the kind of prayer that we need to grow in, all of us, men, women, children, teenagers, that's what's required for us to grow in the, into being truly human and fully ourselves. Now, how can we do this? How can we grow in this kind of prayer, the kind that doesn't come natural? In a word, the Psalms. God's people have always gone to the Psalms to learn how to really pray. The Psalms were the prayer book of Israel. They were the prayer book of Jesus. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, in utter pain, like can you imagine, in the midst of being tortured, the prayer that came out of his, li- his lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't invent that prayer. He had, in- he had memorized that prayer. That prayer was right out of the Psalms. Jonah, when he's in the belly of a well and he thinks he's going to drown, I mean, what more traumatic experience can you get than being like up in there with the fish guts and all, right? The prayer that comes out of Jonah's mouth, it's fascinating. Right in the middle of the book, when he's in his most extreme state, the prayer that comes out, every single line of it came from the Psalms. Different Psalms. He he had learned the Psalms so deep that when, when, when something came out, it wasn't, it was a second nature prayer. See, our first nature praying, God help, or I'm sorry. That's one thing. That's kindergarten. We've got to get to the place where the Psalms become second nature to us. Not our first nature, but the nature that we've learned over time. The Psalms are the prayer book of the church. If you want to grow in prayer, if you want to pray, to really pray, you cannot bypass the Psalms. So for the next couple of months, as a church, let's be like the disciples. Let's ask our Savior, Lord, teach us to pray. And then in the words of a great Catholic monk, Thomas Merton, let's take possession of the Psalms. Let's move into the Psalms. Or better, let's move the Psalms into the house of our own souls. Isn't that what Jesus had done? If in a moment of torture, in his darkest moment, if what came out of Jesus were psalms, that shows us he had moved the psalms into the house of his own soul. And that's what we all have to do if we're going to really mature as human beings, as children of God, as a church. So, Let's start. We're going to start this morning at the beginning, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now, when you turn to the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms, one thing should catch you right off the bat. The first two Psalms aren't prayers. It's sort of like the first day at class when you show up and the teacher says, oh, you're not ready yet. We have to go over the syllabus first, right? Like before we learn, I don't know, whatever you're taking, what are you taking? What's your favorite class? Somebody. Calculate. No. We don't believe in that here. It's like the teacher says, you're not ready. Let me tell you what it will take to be ready. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. The first prayer of the book of Psalms isn't until Psalm 3. 
Psalm 1 and 2 have, have often been described as the arched gateway into the life of prayer, into the Psalter, into the prayer book of the Bible. Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 is one side of the arch. Psalm 2 is the other. Now, notice how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man who. Notice how Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are all. Uh, This is in English literature. This is called an inclusio. It's a writing technique where you put something at the beginning and something at the end that lets you know it, it should be held together. Okay? So Psalm 1 and 2 were often referred to as Psalm 1. They were often throughout the history of the church referred to as the first psalm of the Bible. They were held together. All right, so, and they start and they end with this idea of being blessed. That's a good translation. This was originally written in Hebrew. You could also translate the word blessed. You could translate it happy. That's pretty cool. I like reading a book that starts out with, you want to be happy? I mean, there's... There's a couple of days a year where I need that, where it's not coming natural. You can also translate it, God approved. The one who God approves of. The happy one. That's what it means to be blessed. Now, notice what Psalm 1 says. Bless, happy. Is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, Instead, this guy, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Okay, so the archway, the the gateway into the beautiful garden of prayer. One half of it is the way in is to be someone who delights in the law of God. Now, we have something unfortunate going on here. That technically is a good translation. The word in Hebrew for law is Torah, and technically you translate it law. But here's the trick. Americans, we hate law. And a lot of evangelicals have been taught that the law is the opposite of grace, which is baloney, but we've been taught that anyway. I think a translation that works better for us is instruction. Um, technically, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of soft, but his delight is in the Torah of the Lord. Really, what it's talking about is the Bible. It's talking about this whole book. This whole book is instruction. And some of it comes out in commands, laws, and some of it, some of God's way of instructing us is in stories. And some of the way God instructs us here is prayer. And some of it's history, just like the way your parents maybe instructed you, right? You probably grew up in a home where you learned things from commands, from stories, from family history. I learned a lot about prayer by watching my mom and dad pray. So that word there delights in the Torah of God. It means in all of the instruction of God that's in Scripture. And some of it comes through prayers and stories, and some of it is commands. So our problem, in a lot of the time, anytime you come across the word law in the Psalms, nine out of ten times, it's this word Torah. It's more than law. It's about the total instruction of God coming out of Scripture. Now, that's a problem for some of us. Because a lot of people right here in the gateway to the Psalms don't have the capacity to trust God's word. 
Some of you, trusting God's word is really hard because you've been a part of churches that took scripture like an angry, abusive father and raised it and beat the daylights out of you with it. And I know that for some people, when the first thing in the psalm says the key to the life of prayer is to delight in God's word. And if you've ever come from a place where God's word was used to beat you, then it's sort of like the child that grows up being beat by a belt and then some friend is holding a belt one day and you just associate it, right? And this is, this is, called, this is a problem because if, if the first step into a life of prayer, which is required for maturity to become fully human and truly yourself, if the first step is to trust God's word, and you've been traumatized by God's word, you're in a very difficult place. Other people, it's hard for you to trust God's word because you've been taught that it's untrustworthy. So many people in our community have, in the name of sophisticated modern education, been taught that this is uh, complicated. I mean, think about, what if... Keith and I work together. He's the associate pastor. I'm the senior pastor. We're friends. What if for years and years and years, people had been telling me things about Keith? You know, Aubrey, I mean, you can't really trust everything he says. He comes from a culture, Aubrey, that's just kind of unenlightened. Can you imagine that for years and years and years? And then for Keith and I to work well together, the key is me to trust him. Do you see how we've got a problem? The trustworthiness of Scripture is a thing that you've got to be able to open your heart up to. For me to open my heart to Keith, I've got to believe that Keith is trustworthy. And so some of us have been taught that the Bible is filled with contradictions or it's culturally regressive. Or it's morally oppressive. And there's all these little things that have, been, that have come into us that have, that have undermined our capacity to trust Scripture. And if that's you, you need to know it. You need to recognize that. So I want to challenge you. Look, it says here, the gateway into a life of prayer is to be able to trust Scripture. To be able to make it the center of your life. Not just to trust it, but to love it so much that you're just constantly delighting in it. Psalm 116 says, I love your law. If you can't say that, I love the Bible. I love it. Then you're stuck. So here, here's, uh, and, and the incapacity to love the Bible is often put into us. It often happens to us. So what do you do if you find yourself in that position? I want to encourage you to do this. Doubt your doubts. For, we're going to be in this series for 10 weeks. Do an experiment. Turn your suspicion on your suspicions and fake it. Act like you trust the Bible. Do the things with the Bible that people do who do trust the Bible. And do this for a period of 10 weeks and see where it gets you. See if this verse is true, this psalm is true. Look what it says will happen. If you do this, if you humble yourself and open yourself to God's instruction, look what it says in verse three. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Take God up on his offer. He says here, if you will delight in God's word, if you will trust it, you, you will be like a tree that is transplanted from the way your life is now, a tree that's transplanted right next to a source of water. You will never be without a resource to sustain you. Don't you want that? Stability, durability, freshness, a rich fruitfulness. But then there's the other one, the, the, the wicked one here. It's interesting. It's not the murderer. The wicked one here is the one who simply doesn't give attention to God's instruction. When, when you cannot open your heart up in trust to scripture, it, it gives this image of chaff, this unstable thing. There's nothing to chaff. The wind drives it away to nothingness. It, that's all there is to chaff. But the righteous person is a rich, living, transplanted tree, rooted and productive. Now, for some of you, this is going to be a killer. I mean, it's going to be so hard. For some of you, you really are stuck. Come and talk to me or Keith or Eric or Martin or Wilson or leaders in our church and bring your doubts out. Try to suspend disbelief for a few months. Try it out and see what happens when you, instead of fighting against God's word, presume that God's word is right and see where that gets you. That's one half of the gateway into a life of prayer. Now, what about Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is interesting because in Psalm 2, the ground is shifted. In the second Psalm, we don't hear about an individual who opens their life up to God's instructions. Instead, we hear about nations who reject God's son. Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. A helpful way to understand Psalm 2 is to see it against the backdrop of a government that's in a time of transition. A new king is being enthroned in Israel and there's a coronation ceremony. And during the season of transition, the neighboring nations and rulers are plotting together about how to take over this country. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now this is an astonishing claim. Psalm 2, this is the kind of thing that you would expect Babylon to say, or Assyria, or Egypt, one of the other nations that's actually conquering and winning and powerful, but this is little bitty old Israel. And Israel, this tiny kingdom of Israel, it's claiming here that Israel's God and Israel's king has ultimate power over all the nations and all the kings. And above all of this, that king of Israel has set his son on the throne. I mean, look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. 
today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is Jesus Christ. His baptism was his coronation. Jesus is the son of God. Now look what's going on in these two different Psalms. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, in Psalm 1, we're supposed to take refuge in God's word. In Psalm 2, we're told that the key to a deepening life of prayer is is the practice of taking refuge in Jesus. That's tricky. I mean, I know how to take refuge in a lot of things. You know how to take refuge in a lot of things. What does it mean to take refuge in Jesus? It means at the end of a very stressful day, you develop the ability to take refuge in Jesus, not in alcohol. You take refuge in Jesus, not in a news feed. To take refuge in Jesus is what some people do with pornography. They get stressed, they get angry, they get worked up, they turn into pornography. It's a, it's a safe place for them. Or anger, or overeating, or friendships. The way to understand what it means to take refuge in Jesus is just think about those places you go when you're that little kid again and you're scared again or you're, you're mad or you're embarrassed. How do you turn into something? So Psalm 1 says we have to, if we're going to grow in the life of prayer, the gateway into the garden of prayer is we've got to delight in God's word. We've got to open our heart to it and, and, and always believe that God's word is right. It's, it's truer, it's smarter than I am. And, and Psalm 2 says we have to take refuge in the Son of God. So here's the deal. The gateway to prayer in the Bible is a choice. There are two paths. One path will lead into a deepening life of prayer where you become more truly human and more fully yourself, where you experience blessing, the blessing of God, the knowledge of his approval and happiness come what may. The other choice is laid out in these two Psalms. Look, one, one are we self-centered, centered around ourselves, our desires? Or are we God-centered? Can we pray, not my will, but yours be done, God? Are we self-reliant? Do we rely on ourselves, our intelligence, our smarts, our abilities, our perspectives? Or do we rely on God, dependent on God or reliant on self? Are we self-instructed or fully submissive to God's instructions? These are the two paths. One leads into the kind of prayer that can make you more truly yourself by the grace of God that can lead to the blessed life. We we can sum it up this way. The wicked in Psalm 1 and 2 aren't 
our favorite things about, you know, we tend to define wicked as the sin that we find easy to hate, which is typically the sin that we don't struggle with. But here in Psalm 1 and 2, the wicked are those who consider themselves autonomous. You know what autonomy means? Literally means a law unto yourself. You'll trust your instruction. You'll trust the things you're, you can see and understand. So the wicked in Psalm 1 and 2 are those who are self-centered, self-directed, self-ruled. The wicked see no need for dependence on God or God's word because they can figure it out. These psalms are presenting a choice. Will you choose to enter into the Psalter? This book that gave Jesus the capacity to forgive his, his, his enemies. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Don't, aren't you amazed by him? His gentleness, his kindness, his goodness. Don't you want what he had? This is at the heart of it. The righteous take refuge in God. So they trust in Jesus and love its instruction. So here we have it. The age old entrance into the life of prayer for the church. In Psalm 1, we're called to humbly open our lives up to God's instructions. In Psalm 2, we're told to humbly yield our lives to God's son. Now, I have a very practical um, offering for you. Like I said at the beginning, we can't mature as a church. You can't mature as a teenager, as a college student, as an adult or child, apart from a deepening life of prayer. It does not happen naturally, not the kind of praying I'm talking about. And it doesn't come easily. It requires discipline and practice. So here I'm going to offer you a practice that you can discipline yourself to do in order to do this. Very simple. Set aside a definite time and a specific place where you're going to pray in the weeks ahead. And don't try to get all like awesome in it or anything. Just try to get like three to four days a week, okay? Like just set a goal that I'm going to, look, if an A is I do it at least half the week, that's four days out of the week. There's an A. Like this is a pretty nice curve, all right? You don't have to get seven. You can sleep in on Saturday or Tuesday's a hard day at work. But pick at least four days of the week where you're going to pray in the same place at the same time. This can be in the morning. It can be in the middle of the day. It can be at night. Just set a time and a place. A place. Could be your favorite chair, favorite corner of the house, favorite spot out in nature. Designate it. It's true. You can pray anywhere and anytime. But the kind of praying that it takes to really grow is the kind of praying that doesn't just happen when you've got time left over. And what I want to encourage you to do is this week, use these two Psalms. Just try to do 10 or 15 minutes. Read through the two Psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 2. Pay attention to what catches your eye. Here's, the way, here's my favorite way to do this. I light a candle. It's a Harry Potter looking candle. It's beeswax and it melts and it's melted down. And it looks really cool. I set my little candle down. I light my little candle. I, I take a deep breath. This thing we do sometimes on Sunday morning where you breathe in slow, hold it a moment, let it out more slowly and you let it. I do a few times of that and I remember that Christ is the light of the world and that I am in his presence. 
read over the psalm, and just pay attention to what catches your attention. It's like um, fishing with a cane pole. What, what just kind of tugs at your attention? It might be an, a word. It might be an image. It might be an emotion, a phrase. And then just ride the wave of that. Just, just let your mind and your heart be moved into prayer. What I do is I ima- I'm sitting on, in my chair and there's Jesus. I imagine him sitting right on the end of the couch and then just talk to him the way you, were talking to, you would talk to a friend. Just imagine that you and a friend have read these two psalms and just talk what strikes you. And know that Jesus is there. He is the light of the world. And so as you do this, this special time, this special place, let it become a personal, a private, an intimate thing. Let it become so intimate that you maybe don't even talk to others about it. It's your secret garden. And as you humbly open up your heart to God's word, and as you humbly entrust your life and your future to his son, and talk to him. Let's take possession of the Psalms. Let's move into them. Let's move them into the house of our own souls. A feast awaits us. Let's pray.